If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of James. James chapter 5. If you have one of the Bibles on, from the back table, it's page 1,100, and I believe we're at 1,116 now, if I remember right. Um, James chapter 5. And we are going to wrap up the book of James today. Um, there's so much in me that wanted to do it a little bit longer. We've gone through this faster than we typically go through books of the Bible, but it's been good to kind of uh, keep pace, and, and James has been hitting us rapid fire with a lot of um, lot of tough and um, convicting statements. James telling us that our faith needs to be shown in our works and um, telling us exactly what that's going to look like. Um, so we're in James 5, and we'll look at verses 13 through 20 this morning. But let me give you the, the context a little bit, tying it in from where we were last week. So last week we were in verses five, 7 through 12. And if you remember, James calls us to patience in the midst of suffering in light of the coming day of the Lord. So the hope that we have that one day all will be well uh, spurs us on to bear up underneath all the suffering that comes into our lives, all the affliction that comes into our lives, whether through the rich or the, the powerful or even just the world itself or our flesh, all these things coming on us. The hope that we have that one day all will be well causes us to continue to go forward. But also beyond that, that great hope, which is the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, we might ask, what do we do in the midst of suffering now? How, how, beyond just looking to the future, how in the present can I bear up underneath suffering? And not just suffering, but how do I respond in general to all the different situations that come into my life? James, in fact, gives us one response that is appropriate in every and all circumstances of life. Uh, I think James very simply is saying to us this morning that prayer is powerful and it is always appropriate. Prayer is powerful and always appropriate. That's our, our big thought for today. It seems kind of out of left field with James, uh, but this final call to prayer is also a wonderful way to close the letter. And James, who in fact, according to church history, was known um, to bear on his very knees the marks of being in constant prayer, it would make sense that he wants to call us to powerful prayer, and he is in the right person to do it. But prayer is powerful, and it's always appropriate. Uh, you might think about heading to different events. Maybe you were um, going out on the town, maybe a night at the opera or the theater or something. Or maybe uh, you're heading to a Labor Day picnic tomorrow. Or maybe you're going to head to the beach at some point. And in each of these situations, uh, different clothing is required, right? There's no one outfit that fits each one of those events. You don't wear a tuxedo to the beach, and, and you don't wear uh, swim trunks to the opera. Those are not appropriate. Wouldn't it be nice if we just had one outfit that was appropriate for all circumstances? In some strange way, the way I'm tying that in is that prayer is always appropriate. No matter the situation, no matter the circumstance, the right response can always be prayer. There's never a time when we can say, well, maybe we shouldn't pray. No, prayer is always a right response for the people of faith. It's powerful. It's always appropriate. And as James is going to discuss this in these these verses, he paints this picture of how prayer can, can permeate our lives as individuals, but also as a church. 
so often we think about that about prayer in one realm or the other but James paints this beautiful picture of our individual prayer lives but also our corporate life in prayer he shows us what prayer should look like in our personal lives and our corporate life as a body of believers so prayer is is always appropriate but often I think we, it becomes it's our last resort isn't it it's always the right response, but sometimes it's always our last response. It's the place that we turn to when nothing else works. It's sort of an afterthought. But James, the man um, who calls us always to be people whose faith is worked out in action, closes his letter by calling us to the action that probably most purely represents us as people of faith. He calls us to pray. This wonderful act of faith, if not the act of faith. So look at me with, look at me with, look with me at, <laughs> at James 5, and I'm going to start in verse 13 and read through verse 20. And as we go through that, I want you to think about how he's calling us to prayer. Think about this idea of individual prayer and corporate prayer, but also think about the call to righteousness that you'll see here. James 5, beginning in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Prayer is powerful and always appropriate. The, the passage opens with uh, three parallel questions to three different groups of people. And the first two groups are a little bit more general, and then the last group is, is more specific. So the first two focus on, on individuals, and then the last one moves into the, the church community. So verse 13, James points out two extremes. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So those who are suffering and those who are rejoicing. And in pointing out those two groups, he in a sense covers all of us and everyone in between. So there are some that James was writing to who were in the pit of suffering, who were facing difficulties and, and trials, maybe from without, but maybe just from within, their own struggles from within. Maybe, as we saw, they were facing them from the rich and the powerful that were around them. Um, maybe it was just their own poverty, their own struggles in life, and that was causing suffering. But there was pain, and there was struggle and difficulty in their lives. We can all relate. We've all had pain and difficulty and struggling and suffering in our lives. And so James says to them, and he says to us, if you are suffering, pray. Now that seems like a no-brainer. What James is saying is don't allow your suffering to keep you from calling out to God, but rather let your suffering be a, a catalyst, be a motivator for you to call out to God all the more. 
I think sometimes we think, we imagine that it's easier to pray when we're suffering. And if that's true, it's probably because uh, our suffering reminds us of our weakness, or reminds us of our dependence on the Father. But I think suffering can also cause us to just turn inward. It can cause us to, to focus on our own pain, to even fall into depression of sorts, to ignore God, to even become angry with the Father. Um, I can have a tendency to want to wallow in my suffering, you know, just to sort of sit in it, soak in it, feel sorry for myself. That's what I want to do when I'm suffering. But James says that that's not the right response. The better response is to pray, to acknowledge that God is sovereign, to think about the fact that as he told us in chapter 1 that we can count it all joy when we face trials of all different kinds, knowing that these trials are going to make us more like Christ. And that would push us into prayer. And so we should pray when we're suffering. And don't forget as we looked, remember a long time, not a long time ago, a little while back at the, the prayer of Jesus in the garden, that when we're suffering, prayer doesn't always have to be audible. Remember that Jesus, when he came into the garden, he fell down on his knees before the Father. And sometimes, like Jesus, in suffering, we don't know, we don't have the words to say, we don't know how to pray, but we can just bow before the Father in silence. We can submit to his will, if not with our words, then in the posture that we have before him. Job, again, comes to my mind, uh, probably because he's in James's mind. But in suffering, Job turns to prayer. When suffering comes, Job's response is to kneel in the dust and to pray to God. And we read those words in chapter 1, but then later on in chapter 2, his wife says to him, Curse God and die. Get off your knees, Job. Suffering came. Why are you praying? That was her response. Don't pray in the midst of suffering. That's ridiculous. Just ignore God. But Job says to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. <laughs> Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? Job saw that prayer was appropriate not only in good times, but in the bad, because God is sovereign over all of them, and God works for our good and his glory in all of them. And in prayer, we're, we're lifted out of the pit that we're in, and we're lifted into the presence of God, and we, in some sense, as you're on a mountaintop maybe, can see things a little bit better when we are coming before the Father. So, is anyone suffering? James, in some sense, asked that to us all, and I ask it to you. Uh, is anyone here suffering? Pray. That's always appropriate. Of course, we can also pray when we're cheerful. Specifically, James calls us to not just pray, but to sing praises. You see that? Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. To give glory to God as the source of our joy, and to do it in song. Now, of course, we just did that. That may be here at church, but you can you can sing anywhere. Really, if you want, depending on how good your voice is. Um, in fact, I think there are a few better ways for us to express our joy in God and our gratitude to Him than through singing. And we can do it anywhere. You can do it in the car. You can do it in the shower. You can do it while you're cooking dinner. All day long, we should be filled with, with songs if we're filled with joy. In all places, when we are cheerful, we should let that, that happiness that is found in God overflow in songs that takes that joy and turns it and says, all the joy that I have, all the cheerfulness that I have is from the Father. And I acknowledge that by singing praises to Him. Devoting an evening to singing, as we're going to do tonight, that is not a waste of time. And actually, 
it kind of fits in with what we normally do on Sunday evening, doesn't it? We pray. Well, we'll pray tonight. We'll just pray in song. And we'll sing praises that go to the Father. Of course, if we can be distracted by suffering and kept from praying, then we can also be distracted by blessing. We rejoice in God's gifts rather than Him as the giver. We credit all the goodness that we have to our hard work or our good attitude or our positive outlook. That's why we're so joyful, because I just, you know, I'm just a happy person. Uh, and we neglect to remember that every good gift that we have, every perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of Lights. Remember, James tells us that. Andrew and I celebrated 14 years of marriage on Friday. I find joy in my marriage. But if if I just take that and I say, I rejoice in my wife, but I don't acknowledge that, that she's a gift from God, that the, that the blessing that I have in my marriage is ultimately from the Lord, then I miss something. If I chalk up my happiness to, you know, our hard work or, you know, our personalities are really similar or anything else, then I'm, I'm missing the chance to credit God and to give credit to where credit is due. Because if I, if we have joy in our marriage, that's a gift from God and God deserves all the credit. I can sing praise to God for his goodness to me because he is the source of all that is good. And so that's what we should, we should all do. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Solomon wisely tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes that there's a time for all things. Uh, hear these words. These are from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. This is just good poetry. Uh, think about what Solomon says here. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. And whatever time, whatever situation we find ourselves in, prayer is always appropriate. Prayer is always the right response, no matter what comes at us in life. Because God is sovereignly and lovingly directing and present. He is near to us in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. One commentator, Motyer, summarized it well. He wrote this. We have a God for all seasons. Both in periods of suffering and trouble and in times of joy, prayer and praise alike acknowledge that He is sufficient. To pray to Him is to acknowledge His sovereign power to meet our needs, and to praise is to acknowledge His sovereign power in anointing our circumstances, whether as the source of supply in need or the source of the gladness of our joy, God is our sufficiency. I love that. He is our sufficiency. He is our sufficiency in suffering. He is our sufficiency in rejoicing. And in verses 14 and 15, He is our sufficiency in sickness. There's a lot of questions that these verses raise. Just look at them again. Verse 14, 
We had the two questions in verse 13, and here's a, a third parallel question. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, I have a lot of questions about those verses. <laughs> There's a lot of things that come up in my mind that I want to address. But I first want us to just look at this simple command to those who are sick. Is there anyone sick? James says if anyone's sick, he should call for the elders of the church so that they can come and pray for him. So there's this shift here from more personal prayer now to, to thinking about, about corporate prayer, from the individual himself now to the person not praying himself, but actually calling for the, the church to pray on his behalf. Specifically, this person is to call for the elders, for the, the leaders of the church. I don't think that's because the, the prayers of the elders are more powerful than others, but because they are, they're the leaders. They're the ones that are charged with caring for God's flock. Um, and as we will see, this call to prayer is not just rooted in physical need, but it's rooted in spiritual need. And so it makes sense to have the spiritual leaders to, to come and to pray. Just in general, even apart from sickness, can I, I just want to speak on behalf of the elders and say that we want to pray for you. <laughs> we want to pray in specific situations like sickness, but we want to pray for you in all situations. We want you to ask us to pray with and for you. Um, my hope is that you never feel like the elders in this church, that Joel or Joshua or Trevor or myself, that we are too aloof or that we're too busy to pray with you, to come to you and, and, and put our arm on your shoulder and to pray with you. We are called to shepherd this church, and our great concern is not budgets, our great concern is not whatever building we're going to be in. Our great concern is not having enough time to study the Bible privately so we can preach great sermons. That's not our greatest concern. Our greatest concern is the growth of each member within this church. And we want to be a part of that. And one of the great ways that we can be a part of that is through praying with and for you. But, in case you didn't know this, we're not all-knowing. <laughs> I don't know exactly what's going on in your mind right now. None of us do. And so we need you to call us. Literally, maybe on the phone. At least invite us to pray with and for you. So, I encourage you with that. I think I, if one of the elders disagrees with that, we'll kick them off the team. <laughs> now, obviously, this is, this is a specific situation, though. Um, it's sickness. I would imagine that it's, it's significant. I think maybe that's why they're calling the elders to come. Maybe this person, this individual, can't even get up to be there to pray. But I, it, it, and it may be that the elders are praying over them in the sense that they are in a bed of some kind. But it's hard to say exactly how sick this this person is. But when the elders do come, they come at this person's request. And they come with oil. Here's my first question. What's with the oil? That's that's my first question. What's with the oil? Uh, in in the uh, Old Testament and in, in, in New Testament times, oil um, had medicinal purposes. You remember with the uh, Good Samaritan, he pours on oil and wine as a, a medicinal thing. Uh, but it, so it at least represents healing. I don't think the elders were practicing medicine. I don't think this oil was something that they were using with medicinal purposes. 
but rather it's more symbolic. Um, even there may be hints of it in what we studied this morning in Sunday school with the anointing of Jesus at Bethany. Oil and perfume was used in some sort of unique setting apart kind of way. Then here that's probably what's going on, a setting apart for special blessing. The, the oil is not really focused on, you notice, they just bring oil. That's not a specific kind of oil. It's not some sort of specially consecrated oil. If you wanted to, you could go on Amazon right now and you can get yourself some Light of Jerusalem oil that is sourced in Galilee and Jerusalem. It's made in Israel and it's blended with biblical spices. Or you could go to Costco and you get a whole bunch of oil. <laughs> and I think they both serve the same purpose. Uh, I don't think the, the emphasis is on the oil. Um, in some ways, it's like the bread and the cup that we will partake of later. There is deep significance to these elements, but the power is not in the element itself. The power is in what it represents. Um, and I think that's the point of the oil. It represents the healing power. It represents the grace and the blessing of the Father. And, and that's what it's there for. Um, but in the midst of saying that, of sort of kind of removing the, I don't know what I'm removing from, but, but I don't want to take the, away the mystery of, of what's going on here. I think there is sort of a, in a scientific age, we're sort of resistant to some of these things. This seems a little weird, you know? If you're like me, I grew up in a very conservative circle. We don't anoint things with oil, you know? That's, that's not in my range of possibility. Even though it's right here, I'm struck by that. Uh, we're skeptical of things that are a little too mystical. We avoid smells and bells. Um, but, you know, prayer is a mystery, isn't it? Let's pause and recognize what we're doing. We are communicating with a God who we cannot see. And, and these prayers, this anointing with oil, it seems to me what I love about communion is it's a tangible thing that reminds me of something that is unseen that has happened through salvation. And in some ways, I think that's what, what this oil is doing. It's reminding us, it, it's sort of some sort of way to bridge the gap between the seen and the unseen, of, of realizing God's power and His blessing and His desire to, to show us grace. And so we come with this, the, the oil is, is something that we can, we can see and we can, we can smell and we can feel, and it, it reminds us that God truly does care for the sick person in this moment. So what's with the oil? I don't, I don't fully know. I've done my best that I can. I think it's this symbolic thing and this sort of bridge that helps us to see the blessing that God wants to give. Um, but I will say to you that I will gladly obey this command. And if you would like the elders, if you are face sickness at some point, and you want the elders to come and, and pray with you, we will come with oil or we'll borrow some from your cupboard and we will recognize this and recognize God's unique way to to serve uh, to, to bless us in this way and giving us something tangible to remind us of his blessing of his desire to set us apart for for special blessing so that was my first question what's with the oil my second question is what is the prayer of faith what is the prayer of faith that's what shows up next to me he says anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord in verse 15 and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Of course, all prayer is a prayer of faith, isn't it? How can it be prayer without 
faith. Prayer is trust in a God who is sovereign and good and loving. It reaches out to the Father and asks for grace, believing that it will come. But there's also some sort of uniqueness, it would seem, to this, the prayer of faith. It seems like there's something unique here. It, it reminds me, if, if you exercise, there are days when you do the same exercise, maybe a couple days in a row, and the one day it feels totally rejuvenating. It's, it's effortless. You get done, and you just feel like you could keep going forever. Maybe you, you go for a run, and you run a few miles, and you feel like you could just run 15 more if you needed to. And then you do the exact same thing a couple days later, and you're two minutes into it and say, I hate this. I cannot go any further. I think that some, that there's, that's, that's a kind of a bad illustration, but it reminds me that there are times when we come to God with some sort of unique confidence, a unique faith that He's going to do what we ask Him to do. That there's this prayer that is infused with, with some sort of unique faith, that we, we're filled with, with faith that our request is according to His will in, in a special way. And I think it would seem in this situation that there is a prayer of faith that is infused with a strong belief that God is going to do what is asked. Specifically in this circumstance, that He is going to heal this person. It's a prayer that truly believes that. It believe, it's, it's like 1 John 5, 14-15 says this. This is the confidence that we have towards Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. In some way, I think that the elders maybe in certain circumstances step into a situation like this and say, we are sure that God wants to heal you in this circumstance. Or John 14, 13-14 says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. There's times where we believe that, and, and believe that in a unique way. 1 John 3, 21-22, a similar idea. John writes, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Wow. Our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. I think in some ways those verses help us to see the key to this confidence, and it's a righteousness, a keeping of the commandments that allows us to have confidence in prayer we'll talk a little bit more about that but there's there's something unique I think to this prayer of faith but flowing out of that then the question is if this prayer of faith is, is some sort of uniquely confident thing then I would ask is the prayer of faith always effective to bring healing is the prayer of faith whatever it is and I haven't fully answered that question I'll be totally honest is it always effective to bring healing because it sounds like it. Verse 15, and the prayer of faith will possibly, no, the prayer of faith might, no, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. That's confidence, isn't it? I think it's confidence in some ways like those other verses. This could be sort of a language thing, like the verses we heard from John, there's a unique confidence that we can have in prayer, but there's always a submitting to the will of God even when we feel confident that we know what His will is. I have no doubt that elders in churches throughout the centuries have come to people, prayed for them when they were sick, people who were on death's door, and they were healed. And God healed them because of the prayers that were offered on their behalf. But I also know that the opposite has happened. That elders have come, and they have prayed with confidence, 
and people have died. And this is the mystery of it all, I think. It's, it's the mystery of the will of God. I don't think it's a mystery that should keep us from praying. I don't think it's a mystery that should keep us from praying with strong faith and strong confidence because we know that nothing is too difficult for the Lord. But it is a, a prayer that leads us maybe to the place where when it's all said and done, we're able also to pray in suffering if God doesn't answer that prayer or in rejoicing if God does. If healing does come, we know it's not rooted in the elders. It's not rooted in the oil. It's not rooted in the special words of the prayer. It's not, it's not rooted even in the faith itself. In the end, these are all means, but healing will come from God himself. I can say this as an elder. We are set apart in some unique way by the church to be leaders, but we are human beings like everyone else, and the power to heal does not reside ultimately in me, in any of the elders, or in any human being, period. The power to heal ultimately is the Sovereign Lord's will. He is the all-powerful one. So, when you're sick, prayer is appropriate. When you are very sick, would you ever consider calling the elders to come and to pray for you, to anoint you with oil? I think we, we see, if we're very sick, the no-brainer is we call the doctor, of course. Call the doctor, we would go to the hospital. And I am not advocating in any way that you should not do that. I am not saying pray and avoid going to the doctor. Um, or I'm not saying that if you go to the hospital, that shows a lack of faith. I renounce that idea. It is a, a terrible, terrible lie. It's a dangerous doctrine. It has harmed the faith of many people. And it has harmed people physically. It has even brought death to people because they are told that if they don't have enough faith, then they shouldn't go to the doctor and they shouldn't take medicine. And I don't think that's at all what James is trying to communicate here. And I don't think any scripture is communicating that. So I reject that. But, I think it makes sense that when we call the doctor, that we should also call the elders, that we should call the church. Maybe not necessarily to come in this unique way, maybe just to pray, but maybe to come in this way as it's talking about here. But the reason I think that we call is not just because of the power of prayer to bring, to bring physical healing, but also because there's an intersection here between the physical nature and the spiritual nature and what's going on and why there's an issue here. And so out of that, there's a fourth question I have. So we ask, what's the oil? Uh, what's the prayer of faith? Is the prayer of faith always effective? And my fourth question then is, what's the relationship between sickness and sin? What is the relationship between sickness and sin? Because, verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Why does James put that last thing in there? If he's committed sins, they will be forgiven? I think there's some connection here. Our sickness may have nothing to do with sin. But then again, it could have everything to do with sin. You remember the man born blind in John chapter 9, and the disciples come to Jesus and they say, was it this man's sin or was it his parents' sin that caused him to be born blind? And what does Jesus say? Neither. He was born blind to glorify God. But then, earlier on in John chapter 5, Jesus heals the man at the pool of, um, of Bethesda. Then he meets him later in the temple, and you know what he says to him? He says, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Whoa. 
what's worse than being lame by a pool for years? I think Jesus is saying there's consequences to your sin. Every situation is different, but for the follower of Christ who believes in reality in this world, uh, beyond what we see in this world, we have to pause and consider the role of sin in sickness. So this seems to be another reason why the elders are, are called not only to pray, but also to help the individual discern what's going on in their hearts, to help them consider not just physical health, but also their spiritual health. To ask some good questions. Are there sins that you need to confess and seek forgiveness for? In fact, shouldn't sickness always cause us to examine our hearts? Not to assume that sickness is the judgment of God, but to at least consider maybe Maybe the Lord's trying to get my attention. Our physical weakness should remind us of our weakness spiritually and of our dependence on God, our need for Him in all things. And sin, sickness should naturally naturally lead us to, to confess our sins to God. Don't waste it when you're sick. Allow it to be a time of, to draw near to the Father in fellowship. And the great hope we have here is if, we have, if He has committed sins, He will be forgiven. There is hope that if we confess our sins, they will be forgiven. Not by the elders. That you're, I don't think that's the point. The point is that they are forgiven by God himself. Because this is our greatest need. I'm reminded again of the man uh, who was lame and his friends brought him and they lowered him down through the roof. And what's the first thing that Jesus says to him? Your sins are forgiven. Because that was the man's greatest need. And that's our greatest need as well. Because physical healing does not always come. And one day it will not come for the last time. And death will seem to win the day. But God in Christ has won the eternal day for us. The death and the resurrection of Jesus brings healing to our souls. We can know forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ. We can have eternal life free from sin and sickness and death. Now, from the specific situation of corporate prayer... Of, of prayer amongst the body of believers, James goes to the kind of prayer that should be just sort of a regular part of every Christian's life. So verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of faith offered by the elders with the anointing oil, this is not an everyday occurrence, but I think this prayer, confessing your sins to one another and praying for one another, this is something that should be happening all the time within the church, within the body of believers. The confession of sins here, I don't think is, is probably not the accountability that we have with one another where we confess our private sins to brothers and sisters, uh, but that's very healthy. I think probably what he's talking about here is the confession of specific sins, ways that we have sinned against others, of seeking forgiveness from one another in specific ways. We need to be in right relationship with one another, not letting sin grow in our hearts or cause division between us that would keep us from being united and would keep us from praying with one another. We're not going to pray with people if we feel like we have issues with them. Our community should be one where we have honest communication, where we're open with one another about, about sin and about our own needs and confession. Transparency with one another as those that are saved by grace. Calling out for help. We're all here because we recognize that we can't save ourselves. But for some reason, we get into the church and we get filled with pride and we think, well, I don't want to let anyone know that I don't have my life all together. That's the whole reason we're here, is because we don't have our lives all together. So we should always be confessing our sins to one another, always be praying for one another, because we're always in need. 
This is the purpose of things like the pastoral prayer, of Sunday evening prayer, of your small group, of the many other groups that just gather and pray. And as someone who can always find the way that I'm not doing the thing that I'm supposed to be doing in my Christian life, let me just say, if you're praying with other believers, you are doing the will of God. That's a wonderful expression of dependence on God and of unity with one another in Christ. Prayer with one another is a wonderful thing, and it's something that God has called us to do. Now, I've asked all these kind of questions, so just take a step back, though, for a minute. And I want us to think, and just remember again, this is just a wonderful picture, a painting of what prayer looks like as individuals and what prayer looks like in the corporate body. James is offering to us and he's reminding us of this great privilege of prayer and he's telling us that we should always be praying, that it's always appropriate. We can pray in any circumstance and we should be praying with one another and our community should be a place where where prayer just permeates everything that we do because it's always appropriate and we can always be doing it and we should always be doing it. And in the midst of that call to prayer, there's also this emphasis on sin and on righteousness. The sickness is some way tied to this sin and then there's this call to pray for one another, but not just pray for one another, we're to confess our sins to one another. And even, I think, effectiveness in prayer is tied in some way to, to righteousness. Remember that First John 3 passage where the confidence that we have is that we are doing the commands and so we can ask for whatever we want. And then this example of Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, for three years and six months, and it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Elijah is an example of the end of verse 16. This statement, the prayer of a righteous person, has great power as it is working. How did Elijah have power? Well, we're told in part is because he prayed fervently, because he was consistent, and he prayed with, with passion, but also because Elijah was a righteous man. He was a holy man. The promise of effective prayer is founded on the fact that it comes from men and women who are holy. I think James's rebuke here is a little more subtle than he sometimes is. Usually James is right in our face, but it's a strong rebuke. He's saying we should not expect flourishing in our lives. We should not expect effectiveness in our prayer lives if our lives are not marked by righteousness. James remember, is calling us to keep ourselves unstained by the world. And if we are stained by the wisdom of the world and the flesh and the devil, our prayers will be ineffective. That's a no-brainer, according to James. But God is gracious. God answers the prayers of some of the nastiest, vilest people. He answers my prayers. And I don't think James is saying that if you're not holy, stop praying. That's not what he's saying. Rather, I think he's saying the opposite. We should pray all the more, pray that God would make us holy. But we should also recognize that that prayer filled with deep faith, prayer that can move mountains, prayer that can calm storms, that that can bring rain, that can stop rain, that kind of supernatural, massively effective prayer is reserved for people who are righteous. Not perfect, but people who are striving for holiness. I don't say that to be discouraging because I don't think that's James's point. I think it's deeply encouraging because he says Elijah was a righteous guy like this, but also he was a man just like us. He was a man with a nature like ours. And yet he could pray in this amazing way. His prayers were so effective. And so I would say, brothers and sisters in Christ, 
if we are fervent in prayer and we are filled with righteousness, God can use us as great men and women of prayer. Wherever you are, however you feel like you fail, or you can't pray, or, or whatever's going on, or you just feel like I never rise to the occasion, I think James is saying anyone who's fervent in prayer, following after righteousness, can be someone who changes the world through prayer. And out of that righteousness, we not only can pray with power, but we can call back people who wander from the truth. And that's how James ends. James, the man of action, helps us to see that if we are in deep communion with one another in prayer, we have this sort of spirit. It also leads us to protecting one another when the temptation to wander away from the truth comes. What an appropriate way for James to end. James, who focuses so much on love for neighbor. He says, don't forget the people that wander away. Don't leave them to just keep wandering, but go after them in love. We can do that in prayer, and we can do that with our feet. And just as prayer accomplishes amazing things, this act of love, you see the effects. If we go after those who have wandered from the truth, we save their soul from death, cover over a multitude of sins. They can be part of God's great work of saving a soul from death and seeing their sins forgiven. There is at least a whole sermon in verses 19 and 20, uh, but there's no time for that sermon right now. But as we turn to the table thinking about those verses, I'm reminded that, that as we do call others back, we are reflecting the Father. What has the Father done for us? The Father has sought us in our wandering. The hymn says, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. That's what we celebrate here. The bread and the cup remind us that Jesus has sought us at the cost of his life. And as I've talked about righteousness, let me just affirm that our hope for salvation is not in our righteousness, but it's in his. Even the power that we have in prayer if we have righteousness, we're coming in the righteousness of Christ. That's how we come to the Father, because he has accomplished salvation through that. Our hope is not in our righteousness, it's in his. And our hope is in his death, that he has died for us and that he has risen again. And because of his work, he saves our soul from death. He covers over, forgives all of our sins. This is what we proclaim as we take the bread and the cup. That Jesus has saved our soul from death and that he has forgiven our sins.